I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Brooklyn, Iowa. Brooklyn is a city in Powasheet County with a population of about 1,500 residents. The city was originally called Greenfield, but the name was changed in 1854. The lore behind the name change is that it was renamed when the downtown area was moved closer to a railroad line going through the area. Dr. Reuben Sears gave it the name Brooklyn because the area lies between two brooks, Big Bear Creek and Little Bear Creek. Brooklyn is a small rural community surrounded by farmland and agriculture is the predominant industry. One notable former resident was the actor John Wayne. Known at the time as Marion Morrison, he lived as a young boy in Brooklyn for a couple years before his family moved to California. A new historical marker was unveiled this year to commemorate the movie star. This city is also known as the Community of Flags. The idea came from a local citizen, and to raise money for the project, the Community of Flags Committee opened a flag store in downtown Brooklyn. Established in 1991, the display of all 50 state flags and several foreign flags is one of the town's most noteworthy attractions. But in 2018, it was one worried mother who raised a red flag, bringing together multiple police agencies to this small town in a desperate race against time. On July 18, 2018, 19-year-old Molly Tibbetts was living in her hometown of Brooklyn, Iowa for the summer. She was a psychology student at the University of Iowa, which is about an hour east of Brooklyn, and planned to return in the fall for her sophomore year. She had been dating a local Brooklyn boy named Dalton Jack since her junior year of high school, and this summer, she was living with him at his older brother Blake's house. Both Dalton and Blake were working construction jobs that summer and were out of town for a couple days. So Molly was house-sitting and taking care of Blake's two dogs. Molly's summer job was working at a regional medical center day camp, which the medical center provided for their employees' children during the summer months. This was the same place she worked the summer before. Molly was an avid runner. In fact, she ran cross-country and track in high school and went running almost every night. She was known around town for her multicolored neon running shoes. It was customary for her to run in the evening when it was cooler, So on July 18th, she left the house sometime between 5.30 and 8 p.m. She had two customary routes, one being longer than the other. That night, she took the long route, which took her out of town and onto a gravel road. Shortly before 8 that night, a woman named Christina Stewart was traveling to her parents' farm to tend to their horses. She passed Molly on the road and waved to her. Christina had known Molly since she was a small child, and she was actually her hairstylist. But the next morning, Molly did not show up for work. And because she had worked at the day camp for two summers, her co-workers knew that it wasn't like her not to show up or not to call. They reached out to Molly's mother, Laura Calderwell, and Molly's boyfriend, Dalton Jack, but neither of them had been in touch with her the night before. Molly's mom said she spoke to her daughter around 5.30 the prior evening, and Molly's boyfriend said he was in Dubuque, which was about two and a half hours away, working long days on a construction site. Molly's mom and boyfriend then had their own conversation. When they realized neither of them had spoken to her for more than 12 hours, they contacted the sheriff's department. On July 19, 2018, Molly Tibbetts was reported as a missing person to the Powasheet County Sheriff's Office. 
Molly's disappearance kicked off a massive search effort that involved hundreds of people. Missing person posters went up in nearly every downtown storefront on Jackson Street, which was the city's main thoroughfare. You know, Kath, I also saw that they made magnets for people to put on their cars. Oh, wow. That's smart. And of course, T-shirts. Molly's family started a Facebook group to disseminate information and get the word out about her. And over the next several days, local residents, state and local law enforcement and fire departments all took part in looking for Molly. They searched throughout Brooklyn, as well as nearby agricultural farmland, waterways, ditches and ponds. The Powasheet County Sheriff even went up in a helicopter to search the surrounding fields. However, all of their searches came up empty. Within just a couple days, FBI agents joined agents from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation in helping with the search. Working with the DCI agents, the FBI used their more advanced technological resources to gather information from Molly's cell phone, social media, and Fitbit. As an avid runner, Molly always wore her Fitbit. One week after she went missing, authorities searched an agricultural property south of Brooklyn in connection with the case. Unfortunately, they didn't find Molly or anything that could lead them to her. Just a few days later, the Iowa DCI said at that point they had not identified any suspects in her disappearance. On July 27th, just nine days after Molly was last seen, Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa joined the TIP Rural Electric Cooperative and announced a $2,000 reward for any useful information about Molly's disappearance. The Iowa Department of Public Safety held their first formal press conference almost two weeks after Molly was reported missing. Unfortunately, they did not have much of anything to report and only provided a few details about the investigation. They could not confirm if she was abducted, but stated that they did not know where she was. They would not rule out any possibilities or draw conclusions other than Molly's disappearance was not consistent with her past. And Kathy, by that, they meant she didn't have drug instances in her past. She wasn't a runaway, you know, that kind of thing. Generally responsible person. Exactly. At that point, they had followed up on more than 200 leads and conducted ground, air and canine searches. Now, interestingly, that same day, a retired maintenance director for the local school district told reporters from the Associated Press that he was interviewed by investigators. During this interview, he said law enforcement officers told him that data from Molly's Fitbit showed that Molly had jogged past his house the evening she disappeared. He said investigators also told him that Molly made it home safely and she was doing homework on her computer later that evening. This report gave people hope that Molly was spending time elsewhere and would eventually come home. Four days after the $2,000 reward was announced, the amount had reached $30,000. What happened is that when the reward was initially announced, Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa included information on how people could contribute to this reward. By 10 a.m. the next day, the reward had grown to $172,000. That is insane. That's not even as high as it got. But yes, you're right. That is insane. I yeah. agree. Molly's mother, Laura Calderwood, said at that time that the family believed Molly was still alive. She said she felt her daughter's presence every day. And she was calling on the person who had her to just release her and claim the money. One week later, Kathy, this reward amount hit $300,000, ultimately reaching a total of $366,000. That's incredible. I know. In such a short amount of time, Absolutely. probably. 
On August 2nd, 2018, an article in the Des Moines Register by journalist Luke Nazika included an interview with Molly's dad, Rob Tibbetts. Mr. Tibbetts lived in Central California with Molly's two brothers, but was very close to his daughter. In fact, when he got married about six weeks prior to Molly's disappearance, Molly served as his best man. In speaking with the reporter, Mr. Tibbetts said he thought his daughter was caught in some kind of misunderstanding with someone she knew. He said, if someone out there is holding Molly and they're in over their head and they've made a horrible mistake, you can end it now before it goes any further. Molly's brothers and her boyfriend Dalton were also convinced Molly was alive and would be coming back to them. Her brothers said that they talked about what they would do when she returned. So Kath, one of her brothers joked that he would make her watch each interview that the family had done back to back. Thought that was kind of funny. And her boyfriend said they would put all the missing poster magnets all over her car and make her wear the missing t-shirts everybody was wearing. (laughs) (laughs) And then they said they looked forward to going to every store in Iowa and pulling down every one of her missing person flyers. Almost three weeks after Molly disappeared, the FBI went to the home of Wayne Chesney, a local man who lived just south of Brooklyn, to interview him and asked him to take a polygraph. He refused and told the Des Moines Register that investigators had already searched his farm, his home, and his cell phone, and he adamantly denied that he ever met Molly or knew what happened to her. Naturally, Kath, this drew the ire of everyone around, and just a few days later, he wound up telling reporters that he did, in fact, take a polygraph test. I'm sure there was social pressure. I'm sure there were rumors in this small town. Exactly. Everybody's going to be looking at everybody else differently. Oh, for sure. He said he was asked whether he had anything to do with Molly's disappearance, and he said no. And he also told the reporter that he had no idea what the results of the polygraph were, but he insisted on his innocence. Right. After Molly had been missing for almost a month, the state of Iowa launched findingmolly.iowa.gov, which would allow someone to submit anonymous tips. The site also included a map of five locations. Investigators made it clear that they were interested in talking with witnesses who may have been in those areas on July 18th. At this point, Kath, state and local law enforcement had received more than 1,500 tips and conducted more than 500 interviews. I totally remember when this case happened. I do too. How in this little area does this girl go missing? But that's you know, what like I everyone mean. should know each other kind of thing. This is not a community where they should have to be looking over their shoulders. Right. And just to show the kind of national attention this case had drawn, then Vice President Mike Pence was in Iowa giving a speech and he actually made a point to meet with members of Molly's family. When he met with them, he said, I just want Molly's family to know you're in the hearts of every American. One month after Molly disappeared, on August 18th, 2018, her father flew home to California. In speaking with the Des Moines Register, he said he did not want to go, but his loved ones thought it was best for his own well-being. Before he left, Mr. Tibbetts was effusive in his praise for the people of Iowa, especially Brooklyn, for all they had done for Molly and his family. He said they were all extraordinary people. So, Kath, one of the things I read is that Molly was actually born in California. So her parents were married here. Here being California, for those who don't know that we're in California. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And then I want to say when Molly was in second grade-ish, her parents divorced and the mom took her to live in Iowa. 
So when the dad came out to Iowa, he wasn't familiar with it at all. And apparently he was incredibly impressed by how kind everybody was. He was a member was. of the community. Exactly. You know, it's funny, Kathy. I also read that when he first got to Iowa, he was driving into Brooklyn. He had his now wife in the car and his two sons and he was speeding, right? He was trying to get to Brooklyn as fast as he could. Mm-hmm. And he got pulled over. And I don't remember if it was a trooper or if it was a deputy sheriff. But when the officer came up to their car, Mr. Tibbetts handed him his information and he said, I'm sorry, I'm just in a hurry. My daughter's missing. And the officer said, you know, I've got to run this, right? And he said, absolutely. Just do what you need to do. So the officer came back after a few minutes and handed the information back to Mr. Tibbetts. And Mr. Tibbetts said the officer wasn't even looking at him or his wife. And he just said, we're so sorry for what happened to Molly. We're all doing everything we can to find her. And then let him off without a ticket. On the morning of August 21st, 2018, national news sources began reporting that a body had been found in an Iowa cornfield that may be Molly Tibbetts. No other details were given at the time, but at a press conference later that day by Powasheet County Sheriff's Department, they announced the arrest of 24-year-old Christian Baina Rivera in connection with Molly's disappearance. So as it turns out, as part of the search for Molly, police went door to door to every residence in Brooklyn to determine who lived at the home, what vehicles were associated with the address, and if anyone had home surveillance video. According to court records, an FBI analyst discovered some information on Molly's cell phone that indicated on the night she disappeared, she was in the southeast area of Brooklyn. So agents meticulously combed through home surveillance video and they found one neighbor who lived down the street from where Molly was staying that summer at her boyfriend's brother's house. On the video, agents saw a silhouette of what appeared to be a jogger in the area at the time Molly was last seen. So there were four law enforcement officers who were working on this. Are they all FBI? No, they weren't. There were a couple of the sheriff's deputies who were there as part of it. Okay. They split it among four people and they each looked at the same videos in this area over and over and wrote down everything they saw. They turned it in and then the lead detective was able to go through and, and figure just out cross-reference everything? what everybody saw. Oh, that's so cool. That was real smart. Yeah. When they were looking at all these different videos, the one thing that was at the top of the list for everybody who was looking was a black Chevy Malibu in the area again and again and again, circling, lingering, all of that. So now they had a vehicle to look for. Although the make and model of the car was not uncommon, investigators noticed that the Chevy Malibu in the video had non-standard equipment, including chrome door handles and chrome side mirrors. This information was disseminated to law enforcement as a vehicle of interest, and shortly after that, Sheriff's Deputy Steve Kivy was driving home on Interstate 80 when he saw a black Chevy Malibu with chrome mirrors. Imagine the odds. I know. Which I actually don't know because it's a small town, but still, imagine the odds. Yeah, exactly. So he follows the vehicle calf, and it eventually pulls over to house, and he approaches the driver, and the driver doesn't speak much English. So Deputy Kivy enlisted the help of a Spanish-speaking neighbor to help him out with conversation. The driver showed the deputy a birth certificate that gave his name as Christian Baena Rivera. The deputy also learned that he worked at ERB Farms, but again, because of the language barrier, he wasn't able to learn much else. So the deputy took a picture of Baena and the vehicle and left. Now, according to court records, two days later, a group of law enforcement officers that included the Powasheet County Sheriff's Department, the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation, and U.S. Homeland Security agents went to Yerby Farms. 
The purpose of this was twofold. First, law enforcement wanted to follow up with Baena, and second, they wanted to continue their canvassing efforts. While at Yerby, DCI Special Agent Scott Green and U.S. Homeland Security Special Agent Mike Fischels spoke with Baena. Agent Fischels, who was proficient in Spanish, translated the conversation. During this conversation, Baena signed search consent forms that were written in English and Spanish for his vehicles and agreed to go with law enforcement to answer further questions. Special Agent Green transported Baena to the county sheriff's office. Baena waited in the lobby until he was taken to an interview room where he met with officers Pamela Romero and Jeff Fink from the Iowa City Police Department. Officer Romero is a native Spanish speaker. She was born and raised in Mexico before moving to the United States when she was junior high, high school age. And Officer Fink is proficient in speaking Spanish. And you know, Kathy, what's interesting is Officer Romero was from Iowa City Police Department, as I just mentioned. She actually had only worked there for a couple of years. So she was a brand new officer. But the reason they pulled her in is because they knew there's a difference between an agent being proficient in Spanish versus a native speaker. Oh, totally. And so that's why they pulled her in. They wanted to make sure that the conversation that was had with Baena was translated correctly, essentially, that the conversation was something where he knew what she was saying. She knew what he was saying. And there was no misunderstanding to be had among anybody. Kath, that totally reminds me of when I was a very young lawyer. I was probably taking eight depositions a week. It was ridiculous. I was on this total deposition trail. Many of the depositions I was taking were Spanish speakers, but depending on where you were from, there were different dialects. And so I remember one time I had a Spanish speaking opposing counsel and we had a very educated Spanish speaking interpreter. Not native? I don't think she was a native speaker. What happens is the person being deposed gives her answer and the interpreter interprets it for the court reporter as my sacrum hurts. And so the attorney starts jumping up and down and he's like, she didn't say sacrum. She said low back. Sacrum is something very specific. So they got into this big debate. We had to go off the record. We had to figure out what she meant. But it was not infrequent that different dialects had different translations. Correct. Yeah. So getting a native speaker in there, very smart. Initially, the conversation between the officers and Bayina primarily consisted of basic information questions. They talked about where he was from, who his friends were in Iowa, did he have any family there? And during this conversation, they were talking about the Chevy Malibu. Bayina said that he was not the registered owner of the car. His cousin actually bought it for him, but he was the only person who ever drove the car. Bayina denied knowing anything about Molly's disappearance other than what he saw on news reports or heard around town. But then officers asked about his vehicle being in surveillance videos of the area and then showed him pictures of his car. After that, he admitted he saw Molly the night she disappeared. He said as he drove past her, he noticed that she was good looking. So he circled back around to take a second look. Now, Kathy, you were just talking about the sacrum versus the low back. Mm -hmm. This was another issue. So it was translated as by saying that Molly was hot. In the interview with detectives. Correct. And. Again, it's a dialect thing. Were they from the same Mexican state? Who knows? So they got into a debate about that. So that's why we're using the word good looking because I'm not taking sides. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's what the courts are for. The interrogation lasted about 11 hours, during which Baena made several incriminating statements. Ultimately, he agreed to lead law enforcement to the location of Molly Tibbetts' body. So in the early morning hours of August 21st, Officer Romero, Deputy Kivy, and Christian Baena Rivera went to a cornfield 
in rural Powasheet County. He was able to direct them there by memory. The field they went to had a gate and a long, grassy ingress that stretched more than 50 feet into the cornfield. Baina was asked more questions at the location, and it was there he made further admissions. He said he followed Molly as she was jogging before he parked and got out of his car. Then he jogged to catch up with her, told her he thought she was pretty and wanted to go out with her. He admitted that Molly said she didn't want anything to do with him and threatened to call the police, which made him angry, and he remembered fighting with her, but then he blacked out. Baina said the next thing he remembers is that he was driving his car and noticed Molly's earbuds were in his lap. That's when he remembered she was in his trunk. Baina told Officer Romero and Deputy Kivy that he drove further out to a cornfield, took Molly's body out of the trunk, and saw blood on her body and neck. He put Molly on his shoulder and described the body as being heavy, like someone who had fainted. He then told investigators that he took her into a cornfield, placed her face up, and put corn stalks on her body so she wouldn't be exposed to too much sun. The investigator searched the field and found a female body. It was decomposed beyond recognition, but the person was wearing multicolored neon running shoes. An autopsy confirmed that the body was Molly Tibbetts. She had been stabbed nearly a dozen times in the chest, ribs, neck, and skull. And the medical examiner, of course, determined that the manner of death was homicide by sharp force injury. Baina's vehicle was searched and blood was found on the rubber trunk liner and in the trunk. DNA matched Molly Tibbetts. Baina was then charged with first-degree murder. So Baina was arrested and he obtained defense counsel. The very first thing that defense counsel wants to do is suppress the statements that he made to officers Romero and Fink during the interview on the day that he was brought in for questioning. So, Kath, defense attorneys filed a motion to suppress. And in this motion, they claimed eight gazillion different things about what was wrong with that night. Some of them were valid in terms of he had worked a 12 hour day. And then, as you mentioned, the interview was 11 hours. And Kath, when in that period did he start making incriminating statements? I believe it was in the last like four hours or so. So he was up almost 24 hours at the time. Correct. Okay. And so that was one of the things they pushed. But really the biggest things that defense attorneys pushed on is the fact that from investigators initial encounter with Baina at Yerby Farms to his transport to the station and then into what officers were calling an interview, he was actually under arrest the whole time, even though they didn't say it. That's what they were saying. And they never Mirandized him. And the reason that's important is because you have to Mirandize somebody if they're in custody being interrogated. So in the judge's ruling on this motion to suppress, he basically proved how thorough law enforcement had been in bringing together this confession. When all of the different officers and agencies went to Yerby Farms, the two officers who spoke Spanish proficiently, not natively, They asked permission, right? They gave a form that was in English and Spanish that he could sign to consent for search of their cars. They asked him, hey, will you come down with us? He did. Wasn't put in handcuffs. They took him to the sheriff's department. He sat in the lobby for a little bit with Agent Green before the officers then took him back to an interview room. While he was in the interview room, officers Romero and Fink were very clear with him on several things. One of them was, you can have your cell phone. Oh, look, the door's unlocked. They actually showed that it was open and could be open from either side. Did they tell him, Kath, that he could leave at any time? That he could leave at any time. They brought him food. They brought him drink. All of those things. 
They also made sure he knew that there was nothing they could do for him. They weren't there to do, hey, you tell us this, we'll make sure you get off free. They didn't do any of that. And so the judge actually had noted that really they dotted all their I's, they crossed all their T's. It was done very well, even to the point of bringing in the native Spanish speaker. Right. I don't remember reading anywhere that he asked for a lawyer, but did you read that anywhere? He did when he was first speaking to them at Yerby Farms. The owners of the farm said that they would provide an attorney to anybody who wanted one. So he'd made a comment to the first two agents. Do I need to have the company lawyer? And they said, no, you don't need to have him, which is all true. Which is a truthful statement. Exactly. And so that's why he didn't get them. But they also made sure he was clear about it when he was at the station. Now, what the judge did find is that when officers Romero and Fink first started talking to Bayina, as we mentioned, they were just chatting, right? Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your family. Where are you from? And that kind of thing. They eventually Mirandized him after a couple of hours. But at 1130 that night, a federal agent called and spoke with Bayina on the telephone. And he told Bayina he was placing an immigration detainer on him. So wait a second. During the interview with these two Spanish speakers. With the two local officers. Right. You're saying that. A Fed called in. Do you know if he called in on Bayina's cell phone? I don't. I'm assuming it was through the police, but that's just an assumption because that's some serious clanking for you to be calling the guy's cell phone while he's in an interview. And here you are with a two-year patrol officer conducting a very important exam and some federal agent is calling you. A more experienced officer would be like, bro, I'm in the middle of something. Piss off. This is more important than you do. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm sure she was like, okay, here you go. Oh, crap. It's the feds. The feds are on the line. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's what happened. So several hours after that phone call for a second time, Officer Romero Mirandized Bayina again. I don't know why, but she did. And it was at some point after that second Miranda warning that Bayina actually started making these admissions. What the judge found was that from the time the Fed called and put Bayina on a detainer to the second Miranda warning, none of that was admissible. Because he was in custody at that point. Exactly. Oh, that's so interesting. But everything else was fair game. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Three years later, on May 19th, 2021, Christian Bayina Rivera's trial began after having been delayed by the pandemic. Interestingly, during this time, the trial was moved twice. So first it was moved from Powasheet County, which makes sense because of the publicity there. And it was sent to Woodbury County. After that, the defense made a request to change the venue again, and the prosecutors just didn't reply. I actually think it's wise not to object if defense counsel is wanting to move venue because then you eliminate that issue as an appellate issue. Trial was finally held in Scott County before Judge Joel Yates. 
Now, Kathy, this was interesting. Do you remember a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about going through jury selection and there was a police officer who showed up in his uniform to make right. sure he wasn't put on. Right. And then a judge who was like, I got a summons too. In this case, Judge Yates actually told the prospective jurors, hey, I got a jury summons for next month. So I'm going to be in the same place you guys are right now. There's no black robe exception here. <laughs> I'm like, yes, there is. It's called the defense not wanting you to be yeah, exactly. on that jury. Trust me, you're going to get bounced, exactly. Your Honor. Exactly. We're not going to get into all the deets of the trial, but the prosecution's witnesses consisted primarily of sheriff's deputies who were involved in the search and the arrest, as well as federal agents who assisted with the search and the officers who actually conducted the interview of Baina. One of the prosecution's first witnesses was now 23-year-old Dalton Jack, Molly's boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. The former construction worker was now a sergeant in the Army with the 82nd Airborne Division stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He talked about how they started dating his senior year after a football game. She was a junior. And in such a small town, he'd known her since she moved to Brooklyn in second grade. Kath, when I read that, it reminded me the first time I saw my husband, we were at a high school football game. I was dating one of his friends and I thought he was so I know the cute. I was already going around with someone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that going around. Anyway, Dalton told the jury that he and Molly dated continuously for three years with no breakups. On the stand, he was able to recite her phone number by heart and described her as happy, bubbly and goofy. He said she ran between one and six miles every day, barring extreme weather, and ran later in the evening, typically because it was cooler. And he also confirmed that he was two hours away at the time of her disappearance, working in Dubuque on a construction site. He was briefly cross-examined by the defense, and really, Kathy, they only focused on when he joined the Army, which was just about three months after Molly's body was found. When he first started on the stand with the prosecution and said he was with the army, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, when did he join the army? Mm -hmm. And so thankfully, the defense cleared that up for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But here's the thing, like defense counsel was implying or trying to imply that he left town because he was fleeing. Guilty conscience. Yes, rather than actually needing a change in his life. Dalton testified that he was heartbroken and planned to marry Molly and had to leave Brooklyn because of the memories there. After only two days of testimony, the prosecution rested its case. The defense deferred their opening statement until after the prosecution rested. And you know what was interesting to me about this, Kathy, is that Baina's two defense attorneys were a married couple. Oh, yeah. That's like that other case we had. Dana Chandler. Yes, the retrial of Dana Chandler was done by a husband-wife couple. Anyway, so the first defense witness was a DNA expert who testified that Molly's DNA was in fact found on the trunk liner, but there were other contributors that were never tested. Now, this was in contradiction to the prosecution witness, Kath, who said that the blood on the trunk liner only contained Molly's DNA. Kath, as you mentioned, when the defense cross-examined Dalton Jack, they were trying to maybe insinuate something. The defense recalled Dalton Jack to the stand and pretty much confirmed what you're saying. So what happened is when they brought Dalton to the stand, the defense was clearly trying to put him forth as a potential killer. Mr. Freese, one of the defense attorneys, started this way. So you have a really bad temper, don't you? Wow. I know. And Dalton said, I did it one time. I was probably 16 or 17. I had a problem with my temper. And Free said, in fact, you choked a man out one time, didn't you? Really? And of course, the prosecution's doing what? Hopping up and down. <laughs> You're right. And the judge sustained that. So Dalton never had to answer it. 
And so the defense continued and said, but you were known to fight, right? Friends right there with you at your back, right? And he's like, yeah, I did. And then he tried to connect him to two kids who were brothers. My guess was they were thugs. But what happened was the defense attorney said, you know this guy, right? And he said, well, I know him, but you're friends with this guy. No, he was my older brother's age. How much older is your brother? Three years. Well, but then you were friends with his younger brother, right? And he said, well, no, he was my younger brother's age, which was three years younger than Dalton. So the defense attorney had to just drop that line of questioning and started on the cheating allegations. Oh, well, I'm not sure he was wrong. The defense brought up three different women who they were basically insinuating Dalton was cheating on Molly with. These women all took the stand? No, this is what he was asking Dalton questions about. Got it. So he said, you know, three days before Molly ended up missing, she told you she was upset and sad because of your relationship with Jordan, right? He said yes. And he's really the king of knowing not to say more than he's asked. Right. The day before she ends up missing, you learned that she and Hope had talked about your relationship with yet another woman named Tara. Dalton's response was, I don't recall. The defense attorney said, well, the police asked you if Molly was jealous about Tara and you said yes. And Dalton's response was, if that's what the report says, the defense attorney said, I'm not asking what the report says. I'm asking what you said. I don't recall. And I'm sorry, it wasn't funny, but it is looking at it now because you know what the defense is trying to do. Totally. And this guy is not helping him out. And actually, it gets better. Then comes up a third woman who was another relationship of his and didn't you text her and all of that? And his response was, I don't recall the text messages. And as Dalton's answering all these questions with, I don't recall, you can see the defense attorney, Mr. Freeze, getting more agitated, clearly pissing him off. And really, that's the word for it. Mr. Freeze said to him, what did you do to prepare yourself to testify? You don't remember anything. And Dalton said, I did very little. And he said, you know, we're here on a charge of murder for the love of your life, right? Yes. Oh my God. I would have been so irritated with the lawyer. I could see like Dalton, every minimal answer pissing off defense counsel. You could see it. Yeah. And honestly, as a member of the military now too, he's trained to be very yes or no, right? Right. He says, I'm getting a lot of I don't recalls out of you, right? Yes. And you want this man brought to justice? Yes. And so you haven't thought this through and poured over it in your mind to have every detail remembered? Dalton's response was, it was more than one word this time. He said, when I was asked if I wanted to be here voluntarily, I said, absolutely not. So no, I didn't prepare. And the defense said, you didn't want to be here voluntarily. And he's using this tone. Oh, I'm where he's sure. Like fake incredulity. Right. So he asked him, so you didn't want to be here voluntarily? And Dalton said, no, I didn't want to be here in the same room as your defendant there. Oh, so you didn't want to come here voluntarily to get justice for the love of your life? No. You wouldn't be here to fight for her? No. So, of course, the prosecutor does a redirect. And he said to Dalton, you talked to me every time I needed, right? Yes. You gave us all the information we needed, right? Yes. And then the prosecutor said, tell the jury why you didn't want to be here. Dalton responded, because of the defendant. Why? I wholeheartedly believe he is guilty. And then, as you know, Calf, the defendant, Christian Baina Rivera, testified. And what was funny is that his first point of clarification was that in Mexico, the surname is comprised of your father's last name and then your mother's last name. So people had been calling him Mr. Rivera, and apparently he took great umbrage. He should be called Mr. Baina. What's even funnier is they asked his name and he said, Christian Baina Rivera. Everybody, including his counsel, called him Mr. Bahena. Oh, jeez. The only one who didn't was a judge and he called him Mr. Bahena. But if you listen to him on the stand, he clearly says, because we all know the H is silent in Spanish. Right. He clearly says Bahena. 
And that's I, why we've been calling I, him that. I could see everyone going, Bahena, but it just cracked me up that his defense counsel right. didn't do it right. <laughs> on the stand, the defendant gave his version of what happened on the night Molly disappeared, which was very different than the version he told the police before leading them to her body in the cornfield. Bahena testified that when he got home from work on July 18th, 2018, he planned to clean his car because he had a date with a girl. He borrowed a vacuum from his uncle, but realized the sun was too strong. He didn't want to work. It was hot. So he went inside to take a shower instead, which I understand. I'd rather shower than work as well. (laughs) That is one thing we have in common. After he came out of the bathroom from his shower, and this was about 6 to 6.30 p.m., Bayina testified that there were two people standing in his living room. They were wearing sweaters and dark clothing, and their faces were covered. He said one was bigger and fatter and was holding a gun. The other one was smaller and muscular and had a knife. Baina testified that the men said, don't do anything stupid and everything's going to be okay. He said they were there for a long time and were whispering to each other. Neither one of the men were violent or aggressive toward Baina, but he complied with everything they said. He then said the three of them left the house in his vehicle with the bigger one sitting in the back seat and the other one with the knife was in the front seat. And he said they didn't give him any instructions. They just told him, drive straight. Baina said he overheard one of them tell the other something about someone running. Now, asked by the defense attorney, Kath, how he was able to discern what they were saying, he said, yeah, I can't speak English fluently, but I understand the basics. Baina testified that the three of them drove into Brooklyn, taking a back way, and he didn't know the name of the road. And as they were driving, he saw a person jogging. He said he didn't know who she was then, but now believed it was Molly. He testified she was running away from town as they were driving into town. And he said they continued driving past her, but then the two men told him to turn the car around. Baina said that when they were driving into Brooklyn before they turned around, the two men, for some reason, were trying to crouch down in their seats as much as they could so they wouldn't be seen. Remember, this is a Chevy Malibu, so it's a four-door sedan, fairly small. And then answering a question from his defense counsel, Baina told the jury he thinks that's why the surveillance videos from the houses along the road didn't see anyone else in his car. And he said it was at the direction of the men that he drove by Molly three or four times. These were all the times that it was captured on one of the surveillance videos. He said the last time they drove by Molly, she was on her way back into town as they were leaving. The men directed Baina to make a U-turn, so he's now going back toward town once again, and then Baina drove for a little bit until the person in the front seat told him to stop, and the man in the front seat got out of the car and started moving in the direction toward town, which was also then in the direction toward where Molly had been jogging. Baina said he couldn't see where the front seat passenger went because of a hill in the road, but he was gone for about 10 minutes. Baina said the guy in the back was quiet during this time, but as time went by, he heard this bigger man whispering in the back to himself. And he was saying over and over again, come on, Jack, come on, Jack. So defense attorney Chad Free stopped his testimony at this point and said, you know, Mr. Baina, we've made some comments where we think Dalton Jack may have been involved in this at some point. Are you insinuating that he was involved or if one of the men was actually Dalton Jack? meaning the man in the passenger seat who had left. Baina said no to both questions. And I got to tell you, I was shocked when he said no. Well, you know what, though? He couldn't have said yes because they had no evidence. This attorney was simply trying to draw reasonable doubt. 
part of the problem in trial cap is like attorneys can ask whatever question they want to ask. And by the fact that they're even asking a question a certain way can impute bias to the jury, which is what they're hoping. Right. So after this implication by his defense attorney, Baina started with his story again and said the passenger came back to the car and got in and told him to continue driving into town. At some point, he was told to stop again. Both men got out of the car, but this time they took his keys with them. Baina heard them a few minutes later opening his trunk, and it felt like they put something heavy in the back. The trunk closed and the men got back in the vehicle. They told Baina to once again turn the car around and leave town. He recalled driving for several miles and said he was then directed to turn onto a dirt road, which led to a cornfield. Once he pulled in, they told him to turn off the car and the two men got out. They took his keys and his cell phone. One of them told him not to say anything about what happened and that if he did, they would hurt his one-year-old daughter. Baina testified that the man told him to wait a few minutes and then he could leave. Once the men left, Baina got out of the car. He knew there was something in the trunk, and when he went and looked inside, he saw the body of Molly Tibbetts. Now, Kath, he testified at first that he saw a little bit of movement from her, but later there was no movement, which I thought was odd. I did too. Yeah. He did not look for injuries. He said he stayed there a couple minutes thinking about what he should do and decided to take the body out of the trunk. Now, his attorney asked, hack me and call the police. And he basically said, I was scared. So he picked Molly up and put her in a cornfield and covered her because he didn't want her to be too exposed to the sun. When he left, he said he left her exactly as he found her. She was wearing everything except one shoe. And I found this really interesting, Kath, because I figured he said those words because there had been speculation that she was sexually assaulted. Correct. And there was no evidence. Presented to that effect. Correct. So anyway, Baini testifies that after he put Molly in the cornfield, he got into his car to go home. Now, previously, he said they took his keys and his phone, but then he supposedly discovered that the two men left his phone and keys in the car before they took off walking. He also found Molly's phone, Fitbit, and earbuds in the car, so he took them out and left her stuff on the side of the road. Then he used his phone for directions. This is strange to me because originally he said he had blacked out and found her earbuds in his lap. Well, right. But this is an entirely different story than he told the original investigators. Right. And there were no earbuds to actually be found. They were gone. So he could give two conflicting stories and there was no evidence to the contrary, except, of course, his own statements. (laughs) (laughs) So Baina said he'd never told anybody about the events of that day because he did not want his daughter harmed. After deliberating just over seven hours, the jury returned with its verdict, guilty of murder in the first degree. Sentencing was originally scheduled for July 15th, 2021, but was delayed after Baina's attorneys filed a motion seeking a new trial, saying that two new witnesses had approached police during Baina's trial that could corroborate his version of Molly's death. These witnesses would be able to testify about a man who operated a sex trafficking ring and lived about 30 miles away from where Molly was abducted. Judge Yates agreed to delay sentencing, and he held a hearing on the defense motion for a new trial. At the hearing, the defense attorneys told the judge that unknown parties had kidnapped Molly at the behest of a drug dealer and accused sex trafficker named Michael Lowe. 
According to the defense, the two men who kidnapped her later killed her and framed Baina after investigators got too close to where they had hidden her body. The key evidence presented by the defense was a 2019 search warrant obtained after a woman told police she'd been held against her will and sexually assaulted at one of Michael Lowe's residences. The defense also raised the disappearance of an 11-year-old boy who disappeared only two months before Molly. His mother had a relationship with this accused sex trafficker. Defense counsel Jennifer Fries said it was all part of an organized sex trafficking ring in central Iowa. Which I read somewhere, Kathy, that in about a two-year time, there were 10 kids who disappeared from Iowa. I wonder what the statistical likelihood is of that happening. You know what I mean? Like California is a very dense state. And so it'd be more likely. What would that look like in Iowa? Is it an extreme outlier? That's terrible and scary. It is. And most of them were about 10 to 12 years old, which, of course, makes it different than Molly because she was 19. But from what I saw, most of them were boys. That's so terrible. I know. Of course, no last minute theory would be complete without a jailhouse snitch. Just for you, Kathy. Exactly. (laughs) They were like, I think the Kathys are going to cover this at one point. We're bringing in a snitch. Right. Now, this man testified that while in county lockup, he overheard two men who were in there with him talking about Molly's abduction and how they had to kill her when investigators got too close. And so they decided to frame a Hispanic man for the murder. After finding no credible connection to Molly's case, Judge Yates denied the motion for a new trial. On Monday, August 30th, 2021, more than three years after Molly Tippett's body was found in a cornfield, Judge Yates sentenced Christian Baina Rivera to the mandatory sentence of life without parole. At the sentencing hearing, in a statement read by a representative of the Attorney General's office, Laura Calderwood, Molly's mother, asked Baina to imagine the pain her family felt. Mr. Rivera, I love how she called him Mr. Rivera, Mr. Rivera, I come here today not because I feel the need to address you. However, I come here to give a voice to our daughter, granddaughter, sister, girlfriend, niece, cousin, and friend, Molly Cecilia Tibbetts. Do you know what it's like, Mr. Rivera, to be woken up by your youngest son, Scott, telling you the sheriff needs to talk to us? Scott and I stood in the entrance of our home where Sheriffs Tom Kriegel and Matt Moshman stood with tears in their eyes. It took them a minute to find the words to say, we hoped for a different result, however we found Molly's remains today. Molly's mom then explained the grief with which the news was given to her son Jake, Molly's father, and Molly's grandmother. She also explained the suffering of the family that housed Baina and the business that employed him. You know what was interesting about that, Kathy, is that there was a kid, he was 17, who was referred to as a cousin in a couple of places of Baina's. But I think it's just Baina was staying with that family. Mm-hmm. And this cousin's parents, because they were providing shelter for Baina, received death threats because of Baina, which is just so ridiculous. I can't even stand yeah, it. Yeah, shameful. Shameful is the perfect word. So Molly's mom allowed this cousin to stay at their house for the next year because this kid's parents had to leave town. Oh, my God. So he could finish his senior year in high school and play sports. Oh, but it just it It says a lot to me about their family. the, The grace their family had. Exactly. And the repercussions of something like this. Apparently, the place where he worked, Yerby Farms, also received death threats. It was a multi-generational farm. So I think it was like the grandson and great-grandson of the original owners were running it. And they received threats to kill their animals. It was a cattle farm to kill their dogs, to kill their families. 
And what's interesting, and actually we haven't brought it up yet, is that when Baina first applied for a job, he presented them with a birth certificate and a social security card for an American citizen. He was actually employed there under a false name. Oh. And so they had checked. They had run it through the I-9. Like they did everything they were supposed to do. Exactly. But they had people who were threatening to bomb their house and their facility and all that kind of stuff. I bet these clowns were from out of state. I'm actually assuming the same thing. Yeah. Molly's mom continued, because of your act, Molly's father, Rob, will never get to walk his only daughter down the aisle. Because of your act, Mr. Rivera, I will never get to see my daughter become a mother. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. This is so sad. She continued, oh my gosh, I'm totally going to cry. Do you want me to finish it? (laughs) Yes. Okay, I'll finish it. (laughs) Because of your act, Mr. Rivera, I will never get to see my daughter become a mother. I do hope one day your daughter has an opportunity to become a mother, but how will she ever explain to her children who their grandfather is? This is the legacy you left behind for your only child, Mr. Rivera. I don't know whose situation is worse. Now, this was actually a much longer statement, but we wanted to present the most poignant parts of what she said. Christian Baina Rivera has appealed his conviction and is currently serving his life sentence at the Iowa State Penitentiary. I'm done crying now, so thanks for listening. (laughs) We're going to see if we can make her cry on every episode. (laughs) But not because of what happens. Oh, because Kathy's mean. (laughs) Aw, I am mean sometimes. Follow us if you haven't. Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Five-star reviews. Much appreciated. Much appreciated and nothing less is allowed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 